So here's where we're going now. If, if on your outline there, if you can eat and look at your outline, look at Roman uh, numeral, uh, no, letter E, Confessions of a Broken Prophet um, and of a Broken Covenant. So we're going to cover 11 through 20, and there's, there's something that is woven through uh, chapters 11 through 20. It's Jeremiah's laments or confessions. Now, I told you this morning, I think, this is my favorite part of Jeremiah. Not, not because it's, it's fun material, but because if you want to see what this man's really feeling, if you want to see how difficult ministry can be, um, you, you're going to get a flavor of it here. Here you see an open soul. These are moments... And it'd be easy for him not to have even included these. These are his own personal thoughts. And yet, as he puts this anthology together that God told him to put it all on the scroll, he includes this. I assume this is not what he says to the people of Judah. Here's his own personal feelings about how they're receiving his message, about how hard the, his prophetic career has been. So there are seven laments. We're going to definitely uh, hit those, and they're just all mixed in between chapters 11 through 20. So the first one is in chapter 11, starting at verse 18. So here's the first complaint or first lament. And uh, even before I, I jump in here, let me just say about laments. I'm saying L-A-M-E-N-T, laments. Um, I think we're hesitant sometimes to, to voice these kinds of negative emotions. Like, I, I mean, how many times have you just been down in the depths of despair, maybe sick as a dog, and somebody, you, and, and you, you drag yourself to church, somebody says, how you doing? And in that moment, you smile and say, I'm fine. And you're not fine. But we just learn how to just say, I'm fine. We figure nobody really wants to hear all our problems anyway. So we just sort of put a happy face on and say, it's fine. We do that with one another. Is it possible we do that with God? That we sing songs of praise and thanksgiving, and we sing those songs, but we're angry. And if truth be told, we'd want to shake our fist at God and say, God, why have you allowed this to happen to my child? Or, or why have you allowed this to happen to me? Or why, why, why did you, you know, allow my husband to have a heart attack when we were going to have our retirement years together and now here this terrible thing has happened? And we're really very angry. But we keep bringing ourselves to church and all the songs we sing are praise and thanksgiving and we sing the words but we're not feeling it at all. Now, maybe that's just me, but I think we, we do have those kinds of emotions. And so the question is, what do you do when you're angry with God? What do you do when you're angry about your situation and your prayers are more complaints, or at least if you were honest, they would be? Something in us says, you shouldn't say those things to God. And everything in Scripture says, say those things to God. Of 150 psalms, if you, if you break them up individually and tag them as either a song of praise, a song of thanksgiving, 
or a lament, and most of them fall into those three categories. 60 of the 150 are lament psalms. That's a higher number than any other type of psalm. There are more laments than there are thanksgiving or praise hymns. Now, sometimes you got both mixed in. But about 60 of the 150 are categorized as lament. And I think that gives us some idea about maybe what we should do when we're angry. When we feel like the water's rising above our heads. You don't have to grit your teeth and say, Thank you, Lord, I'm happy all the day. In fact, uh, you, might, you might like that hymn. You, you sing it with me. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. See, that's really good theology until you get to that last line. And then it just kills it right there. All the rest of it is really good. Except now I'm happy all the day. Really? How many days have you gone and not been happy before? I mean, it's just you couldn't be a human being in a fallen world and not experience moments when you're not happy. And, and for some reason, I think we just have a difficult time even owning up to it and being honest when we're not. And so I, I think, what do we do with that? We tend to want to ignore it, push it down, and I think the Psalms teach us, tell it to God. Lamenting to God is not an act of unbelief. That's actually an act of faith, that in your crisis, you're still talking to God. So let me read you a few, just, just a sample here. Psalm 3. See if this sounds like somebody who's happy all the day. O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. And now I am happy all the day. It just doesn't fit. How about Psalm 22.1? Jesus likes this one because he quotes it from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now I'm happy all the day. And, and that's a cry of alienation, of feeling all alone in your suffering, the suffering of a righteous sufferer, or the, the cry of a righteous sufferer. And Jesus quotes that during the crucifixion scene in Matthew and Mark. Psalm 31. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body are also wasted away. My life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my body is wasted away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man. Terror is on every side. Now what's that? That's the genuine cry of a person who's reached the very end of their rope. Psalm 88, O Lord, the God of my salvation, I've cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to the grave. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I've become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead. 
like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. O Lord, why do you reject me, or reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? You've removed lover and friend far from me. Darkness is my closest friend. And that's the end of the psalm. Now that sounds like pretty real life hard kinds of stuff. And there are things that can happen in our lives that make us feel that way. And what do we do? Well, I think we can say those things to God. And that's precisely what we see Jeremiah doing in these seven laments. Now, chapter 11, verse 18, lament 1. I've called this one, uh, Jeremiah, the gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time he showed me what they were doing. I'd been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize they'd plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I've committed my cause. How about that? Now he's not just lamenting how bad things are. Now he's asking God to get even. They are plotting against me. I didn't realize that they actually wanted to kill me, these people you sent me to prophesy to. I feel like a lamb led to the slaughter. They say, let's take him out, the tree and its fruit. Because, you know, they got all these prophets telling them what they want to hear. So he looks even worse by comparison. So let's just get rid of it. And he says to God about them, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. Now that ramps it up a level. It's one thing just to say, God, it's terrible, I feel awful, I feel I'm in darkness, I feel like nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to eat some worms, however you want to say that. It's a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. But it's another thing to say, I want you to do bad things to them. And, and that's what he said, you take vengeance on them for me. Now that's called... I've talked about lament psalms. This has a fancy seminary word name, an imprecatory psalm. You know what an imprecation is? Imprecations, that's a word we, I don't hear anybody ever use, but it means curses. Imprecatory psalms are psalms that go beyond just lamenting and where the psalmist asks God to take vengeance. Now here's a prophet asking for it. Where would he have gotten a crazy idea that you could ask God to, uh, to take vengeance? Because he's read the Psalms. Or he, he, he sings the Psalms. So look at, look at Psalm 58, or I'll just read it to you. Psalm 58, verse 6 would be a good example. I'll start at verse 6. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. He's talking about his enemies. Punch them right in the mouth. Tear, Lord, tear the fangs out of these lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw their bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along. 
Now, I know none of you would ever do this, but you remember slugs? I've not seen one in a while, but they, they were, we sure had them in Kentucky at night. They'd climb, in Harlan, maybe. They'd crawl around, and, and they just move, you know, they're, they're kind of thick, and, and, and they just inch along, and they got, you know, two little things that point up. And if you sprinkle a little salt on them, they just writhe in pain. And I don't know why people do it, but they sprinkle salt on them just to watch them writhe in pain. How about that image when he says, may they be like a snug that, slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Now that's, that's harsh. Do that to them, he says. The psalmist is. That's not Jeremiah. That's the psalmist. Now look at Psalm 137. I like this one because it comes out of the same context as Jeremiah. Here's a psalm that the Israelites sing after they've been carried into Babylonian captivity. So that's what Jeremiah is predicting is going to happen. So here's after the fact. And how about this? By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the trees, the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the picture I get there, a, a more modern picture of exactly what he's talking about. Uh, if, if you can imagine like a, I don't know, a concentration camp scene where uh, German S&S soldiers... They're bringing Jewish people in, and they taunt them by saying, why don't you sing us some of your hymns? Sing us some of your Jewish songs. Dance for us. And uh, everything about these captives would say, I have no song, and I can't dance here. Skip to verse 7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Now, that's a neighbor uh, to the south of Judah. Remember what they did the day Jerusalem fell. They cried, tear it down, tear it down to its foundations. Talking about the city or the temple. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now that's a really bad attitude there. And... I, th I say it sounds so harsh that he would wish that someone would take those Babylonian newborn babies and bash their heads against rocks. But if you've just come out of a situation where the Babylonians did that to your baby, you might understand how you'd be asking God to do the same to theirs. Now, should you feel that way? Probably not. But do you sometimes feel that way? Likely so. What do you do? Well, you got options. You can just repress it, push it down, just ignore it, act like it's not there. Just keep pushing those very deep emotions down. Not only lament, but the desire for vengeance. Now, I've already said you shouldn't feel that way, but let's say you do. Let's not talk about what you should. Let's talk about what often happens with human beings. We want vengeance. So let's say you feel like, no, that's wrong. I shouldn't feel that way. And you just keep pressing it down and pressing it down and pressing it down. You know what happens? 
you won't be able to press it down forever. You're going to explode. And do you usually explode on the people that you're angry with? Or do you end up exploding on the people you love most? That's the people that you explode on. So I don't recommend just pressing it down. The other option would be go get a gun. Go get your vengeance. Go punch them in the mouth. Or worse. I don't recommend that either. So what do you do? How about you take it to God? Now I know that seems kind of, well, is that, that's the answer, take it to God? I'm having all these strong emotions, you're just telling me to take it to God? You learn a lot when you have children, and I've got two. I've got an 18, about to turn 19, and one that just turned 14. So they're about five years apart. And I, if, whenever I talk to people who don't have children, I say, whatever you do, don't have children that distance apart. It's just the worst. Because they have driven each other crazy. It's better now. But for most of their lives, that five-year gap was just enough where the young one irritated the old one beyond <laughs> what any human being should torment another. Uh, and so the, the younger one irritated the older one, and the older one was big enough to completely overpower the younger one and to get his own vengeance. So we just live with this constantly. And the younger one's too pig-headed to know I'm going to get hurt if I keep challenging him and just keep challenging him. So more than once, you get, you get yourself caught in the middle of one of these melees, and the younger one's usually the one who's hurt, sometimes bleeding. Now, I'll give the older one credit. He's never really hurt the younger one, not to where he had to go to the emergency room or anything like that. No broken bones, but... A bloody nose once or twice, skinned elbows or knees on the concrete out where the basketball goal is, that kind of thing. But we had some kids over one time, some OBU students, this was post-Owen, and um, we were out in the backyard playing football, just passing the football around, playing, just playing kind of touch in the backyard. And um, this was where the younger one was starting to show he was more athletic than the older one. So the older one wanted to be good out there with all these college kids, but here's his little brother out there, and everybody's like ooing and on because he's so little. You know, that's what gets your attention. Oh, he's a little kid who can do all this. And I can see Luke feeling like he's kind of left out and not liking the way things are going, but I didn't know what was about to happen. So they're playing some sort of touch. Here goes Levi running down the sidelines with the football. He's going to score a touchdown. And, and, and I see him going this way, and I see Luke coming this way. Now, they were just playing touch. And Levi gets to about the end zone, where there's like this much room between the end zone and the fence. Because we weren't going that hard, you know. You, and he just, he gets to Levi and pushes him as hard as he can with about this much distance. Levi running as hard as he can, and Levi just smashes into the wall. It, and it wasn't concrete or anything, but it was enough to hurt. And he just hits face first. It was, it was ugly. And Levi was not unconscious or anything, but he was crying. And he wants vengeance. And he wants me to get it. Because he can't. So he's like, I just hate him so much. 
you, I want you to do this and this and this. Take away this. Whip him. You know, he's got a whole list of things. And I could say in that moment, now Levi, you can't say that about your brother. Don't you say that about your brother. You can't say you hate him. Don't say that. Just push it down. Just stop. That's one option. I've learned over many years of failure, that's not the best. I could say, here, let me, just a second, Levi, let me get a pen and pad and get all this down. And then, you know, just go do just what he's asked me to do. And that doesn't work either. That's not right. So, so how about you say something like, you listen to him, you let him pour out this anger he has, and then you say, okay, Levi, now I'll take care of it. And strangely, that seemed to usually take care of it. Not that he'd always be 100% happy about the, what he thought wasn't a harsh enough punishment, but that usually allowed things to calm down. And I think that's precisely what these psalms teach us. You can't press it down, and you shouldn't go get a gun. But you can say to God, I want you to punch him in the mouth. And then it's almost as if God answers, I'll take care of it. And that old vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We have to trust that. Now, the second one, that's the first one. The second one is in chapter 12, starting at verse 1. You're always righteous, Lord. This is um, the misery of the wicked prospering. Who hasn't lamented about the wicked doing well, and the righteous not doing well. You're always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak to you about your justice. <laughs> you get that? You always do the right thing, God, but I got a problem this time. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? If you want a good commentary on this or Comparative passage. Look at Job 21. Job says virtually the same thing in his suffering. You've planted them and they've taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You're always on their lips but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Now these people who are not really your people, who just talk a good game, drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. Now, what had he said he felt like in the first lament? He felt like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Now, what's he asking in the second lament? What's he asking God to do? To butcher them like lambs. Do to them what they want to do to me. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. So that's the second. And that, how long will the land lie parched? You know, this, this famine. He's asking for, they're talking about famine in the land. I think we, or not, or, or drought. I think that's something uh, Oklahomans can relate to. So that's the second lament, calling for God to do bad things. And, um, yeah, so let's go on to the third one. You've got to go to chapter 15 now for the third of these complaints or laments. I've tried to give these titles that 
you might know. Of course, I date myself when I do it. But do you know um, Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way? There's a line in there, regrets, I have a few. It sounds like Jeremiah has some regrets. Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth, a man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I've neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone curses me. The Lord said, Surely I will deliver you for a good purpose. Surely I'll make your enemies plead with you in times of disaster and in times of distress. Can a man break iron, iron from the north, or bronze? You remember what God told him in his call? Go back, go back to chapter 1. Just remember, I think I, said, I read this at the end of the service this morning, the Sunday school time. It's chapter 1, verse 18. Today I've made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. So there's God telling Jeremiah, yeah, you're going to have enemies. People are going to oppose you, but I've made you a strong, you know, a bronze wall. I've made you strong. And now God says to him, can a man break iron, iron from the north or bronze? Look at verse 20 where this, this goes all the way into that. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they'll not overcome you, for I am with you to rescue you. That's what he tells him in the call passage. He's reaffirming that. So Jeremiah says, boy, I wish I'd never been born because I've got all these enemies. And God's saying, I told you this was going to happen, but I've made you strong. You're a fortified wall. I'm with you. But back to where this starts. Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth. That's his regret that I'm even been born. He's going to come back to that in the last lament. But he's questioning the day of his birth. He says, you know, here I am, a man who's neither lent nor borrowed. Everyone curses me. The whole land strives with me. My life's just awful. I just wish I'd not been born. You, you ever had a child tell you that? I just wish I'd never been born. Or in their own lamenting, you know, some like, well, you had me. This is, I regret that I was even born. And then look at verse 16. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. You know, back there early when you called me to be your prophet, your word would come to me and it was a joy, it was a great delight. But now he's become disillusioned because of all the resistance he's get people who want to kill him he says for i bear your name lord god almighty i never sat in the company of revelers never made merry with them i sat alone because your hand was on me and you had filled me with it and you had me and you had filled me with indignation why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable you are to me like a deceptive brook like a spring that fails He's saying, God, you deceived me. And the truth is, God had not deceived him. God told him he was going to be opposed. But I've made you a bronze wall. I've made you a fortified wall. I've made you bronze, and I'm with you. That's not changed. He's just feeling real bad about it at this moment. So I'm saying, pour it out to God, but that doesn't mean we might go too far. We might not go too far from time to time. So what has he done? He's questioned his birth, and he's called God deceptive, like God's somehow tricked him into this. 
How about questioning his birth? Go back to the first session this morning. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And now he's saying, I wish I'd not been born. That's questioning God's sovereignty. That's questioning God's commission of him. That's questioning everything. If God formed him in the womb and chose him before he formed him, if he set him apart before he, he, he was birthed, to go back and say, I wish I'd never been born, is to question God's sovereignty and his commission. He's rejecting God's call by saying, I wish I hadn't been born. And now look what God says. Verse 19. This is what the Lord says. You don't get this very much in response to lamenting. But it looks like he may have crossed the line here. God says, if you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you can be my spokesman again. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. So that's, that's God's response. Now, whoa. Now, if you repent of that bad attitude, the one where you're questioning my sovereignty, you're questioning my call, uh, and that I'm deceptive, that somehow I tricked you, then I'll let you be my spokesman again. So that was a little bit of a warning shot. Now, whoa. And it might be the, the, the calling God deceptive that got him a, a little rebuke there. Now look at confession four. This is prophet on a hot seat. Verse 14, heal me, Lord, and I'll be healed. Save me and I'll be saved, for you are the one I praise. <laughs> Sounds good. I thought you said it was a lament. Well, hang on. They keep saying to me, where's the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. They're mocking him. When they say, where's the word of the Lord? Let it be fulfilled. That's him saying this judgment's coming from the north. And a decade passes. And 20 years passes. And 30 years passes. And about that time they do invade. A smaller invasion, but still, it's like 30 years into his prophetic career before there's any sign of Babylonians coming. So what they're saying is, oh, you're supposed to be a prophet? Well, where's this destruction you keep talking about? For 30 years. And all these other false prophets are saying, oh, it's all good. Safety, safety, peace, peace. And it looks like they're right. So they're questioning whether he's a true prophet or not because what he's saying is not happening yet. I've not run away from being your shepherd, verse 16. You know I've not desired the day of despair. What passes my lips is open before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of, the, of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. <laughs> So uh, that's more of that wishing evil on your enemy. So that's, they're questioning my prophetic ministry here. I'm given everything and despised by everybody, and they are questioning whether I'm an authentic prophet. Get even with them for me, God. So that's four. Now five is chapter 18, verse 19. Uh, I've, uh, I've named this one Slipping into the Pit of Despair. Uh, if you watch Princess Bride, which you surely have, the movie Princess Bride, if you've not, you should immediately, tonight, go home, watch Princess Bride. 
all-time great movie. And I don't care if I am dating myself a little bit. It's still worth watching. But the, one of the main characters, Wesley, uh, has, has been, he's, he's, he's being, they're trying to kill him, like the, the king. And he has him taken to the pit of despair. And uh, so there's like this albino that's like nursing him, trying to nurse him back to hell so that he can torture him. And, and, he, and Wesley sort of comes back too and he says, where am I? And he says, you know, you're in the pit of despair. And don't even think about trying to <coughs> escape. You'll watch it, you'll get it. <laughs> so it's the pit of despair. It's a place where you suffer. Listen to me, Lord. Hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they've dug a pit for me. I've done good. I've been the prophet you called me to be, and yet they've dug a pit for me. Pay attention to that. They've dug a pit for me. Remember that I stood before you and spoke in their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine. Hand them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. Let their men be put to death, their young men slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring invaders against them, for they have dug a pit to capture me. See how that marks off that whole little cry for vengeance? They've dug a pit for me, they've dug a pit for me. And they've hidden snares from my feet. But you, Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Have you ever heard of a prophet who didn't want the people to be forgiven of their sins? Jonah? He won't even go to the people of Nineveh because he's afraid they might repent. Well, here's another prophet now who doesn't want God to forgive them at this moment. Now, I don't think he feels this way all the time. But he feels this way sometimes. And he's pouring it out. That's five. Six? is in chapter 20, verse 7. Now we're back to the deceptive God business again. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. Almost like God bullied him. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. You know, because his message is about violence and destruction. He says, I, I preach what you tell me to preach all day. And what's it brought me? Insult and reproach. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire Shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Now, this is that what I think I might have mentioned this morning. We, we say, boy, we need preachers with fire in their bones. Like, like, like Jeremiah is saying, I got this fire in my bones. Like it's a good thing. He says, I wish I could stop this crazy preaching about all this death and destruction. But you won't let me because you put it in my, in my bones like fire. And if I try not to preach, it's like it sets my whole body on fire. So I've got to do it. <laughs> so that's the fire in the bones. He doesn't want it. He wishes he didn't have it because he'd like to stop all this. And you've got to understand, this isn't one tough sermon. This is a whole career, a whole life built around 
violence and destruction is coming. It's firing his bones. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him, let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he'll be deceived, then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. That's what his friends say. <laughs> but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. They will, their, their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I've committed my cause. And then look at how it ends. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. It's just like, you know, emotions like this. Who, who tells that? Who records that? Well, Jeremiah does. You know, this is all part of what he and Baruch put down on the scroll. So he saw value in showing these genuine expressions. Now, why do you think that might be? Maybe there's something there that we can learn from how to pour it out to God when you feel like that. And it also says that life and ministry and calling and commission might not always be easy. And the last one is uh, the next verse, starts in verse 14. He's back to this. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. So like mark off that day on the calendar <laughs> so that that's not a blessed day for anybody. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news who made him glad saying a child is born to you a son. Now, I don't know who that is. Maybe that's uh, the doctor who comes out and says you have a son. You remember the days when you could, like, have cigars in the hospital? Now, you've got to be really older than me to do that, because if you came near a hospital with a cigar these days, you'd be arrested. But if you, you remember, and I don't remember it either, really. I, I do remember people passing them out, but people weren't smoking them. But some of you might actually remember when you could smoke the cigars in the waiting room. Because somebody's passing those babies out, you know? It's like he says, you know that guy who handed out the cigars the day I was born? I pray the worst curse possible on him. Look, look what he says. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb when, when my mother as my grave her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Now that's no sanctity of human life Sunday. That's hard. That's a harsh way to say, I wish I'd never been born. Now he's not the only one uh, to do that. Uh, if you hear Job in Job chapter 3, could your suffering be so great that you just wish you'd never been born, that that day would just cursed? Job says in Job 3.1, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness 
overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Boy, that's eloquent lament. Um, that's what Jeremiah says he feels like. Now what do you do when you feel like that? Cry out to God. Jeremiah won't stay like that. The psalmist doesn't stay like that. But that's how the psalmist feels at the moment. And I don't know about you, but it, it tends to make me feel the freedom that I can be honest with God. Because the alternative is just to fake it, like it's not even there. Just ignore it and maybe it'll go away. I'm not sure time heals that kind of wound where you just keep repressing those emotions. Cry out to God. The psalmist says do it. Job says do it. Jeremiah says do it. Nothing about those texts say they're there to show you what you shouldn't do. I think they're there to say, what do you do when you don't know what to do? How do you express emotions that seem too strong to even tell your friend at church about? Well, you cry out to God. And my sense of it is, when you honestly cry out to God, that's like the first step on the way to genuine praise. You can fake praise and thanksgiving when it's not there. But that might be the higher act of faith to actually tell God what you're feeling. And maybe that gets you back on the way to genuine praise. Well, I think, uh, is that, how long was I supposed to go tonight? 7.15? Oh, they do. Boy, Owen just sold you out because I was going to let you go. Now, I can, do this, I can do this quickly and we can get through this whole section. Now, that's the seven laments. He's, he has weaved, woven through this same section some prophetic images that I think are worth noting. And I'm, I'm glad I can do this because these have more meaning in conjunction with the laments. So, if you look on the handout... Uh, again, you'll see somewhere down there after the seven lament, like a not so happy birthday. You see that? That's the one I just did. Then I've got these seven prophetic images. The first one, the violated covenant. You see that? I'm not going to do that one. That one's obvious enough. You've broken God's law. But the second one is the soiled belt in chapter 13. So these are just these prophetic images woven through the laments. And God tells him, now this is the kind of stuff prophets do. They act out things like object lessons, acted parables. God tells him to go get a white linen belt and wear it around. Show it off. White linen belt. You know, a brand new white anything is going to really show up 
they didn't, you know, they didn't ble- have bleach for their garments and stuff, so they get dingy and dirty. So you got a you got a fancy white belt. I, I picture it like uh, I, I often think in terms of mood, movies. You know, Vacation. Now I'm not recommending you go watch this as strongly as I am Princess Bride, but you know, Cousin Eddie in the movie Vacation, he's got those white patent leather shoes. That would be the same kind of pair. You know how that white shoes just really stand out like a dark suit and white patent leather shoes you th- if you can picture that that's what i picture this white linen belt that god tells jeremiah to go put on wear around so he wears it around then he tells him to go stick it in a crevice by the river where it's going to get all dirty and nasty so he does and it sits there a while then he tells him to go back and get it and put it on again only now it's dingy and dirty and all nasty. And, and here's what he says. In the same way as I have ruined this belt, I will ruin the pride of Judah. How about that for an object lesson? Wearing that dirty belt and that around, like, I'm, like I ruined that belt, I'm going to ruin your pride. That's a soiled belt. Chapter 14 is drought in the land. And that's the prophetic image there, that drought is coming. And I'll just, I'll just say to you, nobody in Oklahoma needs any instruction about drought. We know what that looks like. Your yard probably looks like that about July or August, sometimes earlier than later. But you know what the picture of drought looks like. Chapter 16 is the one that, and, and, and the next in chapter 18, these two are the, that stand out to me. But look in chapter 16. The forbidden marriage. So has anybody at this point, have you wondered throughout the whole day yet, what's going on with Jeremiah's wife? Like if he's got this 40-year ministry like this, I mean, being a pastor's wife is tough. But y'all really like Owen. So being Amanda's not that tough. But what if you're... Pastor, was it like your friends here, Owen, were just waiting for the opportunity to kill you? That might be tough on your wife, too, then, you know? It'd be hard for them to want to kill you and still like your wife. So where's Jeremiah's wife? How about his kids? What's it like going to little Hebrew elementary school and be Jeremiah's kids? And, and maybe they're not telling the kids to go beat up Jeremiah's kids, but kids pick up enough at home. Where are they? Well, here's why we not heard about them. Then the word of the Lord came to me. You must not marry and have sons or daughters in this place. For this is what the Lord says about the sons and daughters born in this land and about the women who are their mothers and the men who are their fathers. They will die of deadly diseases They will not be mourned or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. They will perish by sword and famine, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. For this is what the Lord says, don't enter a house where there's a funeral meal. Go down to verse 8, and do not enter a house where there's a feasting and sit down to eat and drink. For this is what the Lord says, before your eyes and in your days I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom. This judgment's going to be so harsh when it comes, you don't want to have a wife and children who are going to be subjected to this Babylonian invasion. 
It's the kind of thing that makes you wish somebody would bash their baby's heads against the rocks. You don't want to have children when that happens. And can you imagine what life would have been like for Jeremiah's wife and kids, even before the Babylonians arrived? So think of the life Jeremiah is living, all because he was obedient to God. Forty years. Violence, destruction, bloodshed is coming. And you can't have a family. You kind of feel differently about Jeremiah, having heard him lament. My study of this has just changed so dramatically just the way I've thought about this prophet. I never weighed very heavily the price he paid. The price he paid for obedience to God. But the truth is, there's no other place to find life. You could say that's a hard, hard number he drew, but what else would he do? Is there a better life by being disobedient to God? No. And um, then chapter 18. At the potter's house. This is the most famous image yet. Now I really want you to pay close attention to the text. Because first thought, I think this is one of those that's so familiar, we think, oh, I know this one. I'm interested in other things because I didn't know them as well, but I know this one. God tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter. The potter's weaving out of the lump a pot. You know, he's, he's fashioning out of the lump a pot. And so we think that's a picture of God's sovereignty and the, the pot doesn't get to tell the potter what, he, what, what are you going to make out of me or don't make me out of that, make me something else. You know, the, the, the pot doesn't, can't tell the potter what to do. And that, so that it is a picture of God's sovereignty. And it is a picture of God's sovereignty. But I want you to pay real close attention to the image that Jeremiah paints. So chapter 18, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I'll give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house. I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Now you see what's going on here? This wasn't like the potter looks at this lump of clay and says, oh, I'm going to make it into this before he even looks at it, then fashions it what he wants, and he's done. The potter starts working with the lump, and because of its imperfections, he makes something else out of it than what he first was making. Now, you think about what that image means. Is this a picture of absolute sovereignty that God makes out of absolutely what he wants to make with no role being played by the lump? Or is this a picture of God working with the lump's imperfections? Now, the lump doesn't get to decide what it is. The lump doesn't tell the potter what, what, what he should be. But God is working with the imperfections in the lump to make it and to what it finally is. It seems like it's the latter. So what is that then? It's that mysterious interplay between God's sovereignty and human response. That God didn't just make it what he wanted it from. The, he fashioned it, and while he's dealing with the imperfections, he fashions it into something else. 
So uh, maybe there's something here of that, you know, we, all, we often debate God's sovereignty versus human freedom. What role does God's sovereignty play in salvation over against human free will? You know that debate that goes on. And some people cling to one side of that debate, and some people sort of cling to the other side of the debate. And, you know, if you know me very well, you probably think, well, he's probably trying to find somewhere in the middle of that debate to say there's some element of both of those present. And usually somebody who just wants to, to argue some sort of sovereignty that, that takes no role of human response into account would just assume the image of the pot and the clay affirms that belief. But what does the image say? He's working with the lump. He encounters its imperfections. And he makes something out of it other than what he first was making. That's what Jeremiah observed. So it looked, my interpretation of that, there's no debate that that's what happens. So it looks to me like there's something, uh, an interplay going on there that may even be mystery that we can't fully understand. But it's not simply God just makes it what he wants. He's fashioning it and working with its imperfections. Now, it's still a picture of God's sovereignty. The, the lump doesn't tell the potter what it's going to be. God is free. Now, that's the kind of sovereignty I'm down for. God is free. He's free to make it what he wants from the start or to work with its imperfections, but that's all part of God's freedom, to do it as he wishes. The, and then the last one, 19. And I really like this one I, because of what, what we just saw. Chapter 19, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Well, where might he find a potter? And where might he find a clay pot? Well, he just saw. He knows a potter. He went and watched him form this pot. I like to think that he goes and buys the pot that he watched the potter form i can't prove that but don't you like the thought of that come on are you still awake we're almost done here work with me isn't that a good image that when he says go down to the potter's house he goes and buys the very pot he watched the potter fashion i love that i don't know if it's true but i love that so so he, he basically he tells me go get that go get a pot take along some of the elders of the people and the, uh, of the priest and of the priest, and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which was a place where child sacrifice took place, near the entrance of the potter's potsherd gate. And there proclaim the words I tell you. Um, that Ben-Hinnom in Hebrew is Gehenom. Does that sound like something you might have heard? Gehenom, Gehenna. That's Gehenna that in the New Testament is the word for hell. So go down to that place. And uh, I want you to Take that pot that you've bought, and in front of everybody, I want you just to smash that pot. And then, verse 10, Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching, and say to them, This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. That's what prophets do. Owen, you ever broken any pottery during a sermon? Not on purpose. <laughs> I think maybe you ought to break something during a sermon. That'll get everybody's attention. Just smash it right there on the stage. Or something like that, because, you know, that's what prophets do. I've never done that. I've never had the courage to do that either. 
I should have done that tonight. I should have just walked over there and got one of those chili bowls and smashed it here. <laughs> you said he lost his mind. I'm sure that's what they said about Jeremiah. Well, I digress. Thank you. I've had uh, great fun doing this today, and I got where I wanted to get. And uh, we'll have an hour to finish it out. Now, I know you're thinking, that's just, there's like 32 chapters left. But I, I took this all into account. I'm fashioning this just as I had planned from the beginning. Uh, I'll be able to do just what I wanted to do uh, in the hour we have left on Wednesday night. So, uh, I'm finished. Do you need this? You, would you like to say anything, or should I? An hour. All right. I'll ask a blessing on him. We've had, we've had a lot of harsh words in this text tonight. It's been a lot of dark. We'll leave on a much more optimistic note. Now, as you go out from this place tonight, may you go with God and may you not be afraid. May the Lord go before you to lead you. May the Lord go beneath you to secure you. May the Lord go behind you to protect you. May the Lord walk beside you to befriend you. Now go, go with God, and be not afraid. Amen.